Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and this week we're going to talk to our very own David McAllister about the radical land revolution happening in Scotland. A little earlier in the year, David wrote an essay for us about what he called the nation's inspiring struggle to give everyone a stake in the ground beneath their feet. All right, thanks for joining us, David. How are you doing today? Um, very well, thank you, Tom. How are you? I'm fine. So, first of all, what does land reform mean? It sounds vague. What does it mean in Scotland? Well, I think now um, the main thing that's dominating the conversation about land reform in Scotland is community ownership. You know, the idea that local communities across the Highlands and Islands uh, would take ownership of land themselves and collectively make decisions about how it's run. Okay, well that sounds nice and simple, but to understand why land is a particular issue in Scotland, you suggest we might do well to start with some fella called Lord Rossmore. So Lord Rossmore was an Anglo-Irish sort of aristocrat in the sort of early 1800s who, and this is quite a typical story, I think it happened quite a lot in Scotland, which is why it's quite interesting, but he inherited some land through the diary of his wife, who was an illegitimate daughter of the Duke of Hamilton. And he decided one day that he wanted to make improvements on his land because he failed to sell the land, so he thought he might as well do something with it. He built a hunting lodge, but the problem with the hunting lodge was that uh, the best location for it was very close to a nearby village called Catacle in Glen Catacle, which were these sort of very dark sort of black stone cottages that were quite unsightly for his you know, um, esteemed guests, if you like. So his solution to you know, deal with this problem was to first invite all the villagers of Catacle to his new lodge as a sort of, you know, I guess a mark of goodwill. Then once the villagers were all rounded up in the house, they found that they weren't allowed to leave. They're locked in? Yeah, basically. For, you know, I don't know how hours or however long it was. And then when they were eventually released from their evening of welcome. <laughs> right. So that's that's the welcome from the from the new landlord. What happened next? Were they were they literally homeless? So he did eventually build some new houses for them, but more importantly, he built those houses uh, out of sight of his hunting lodge, away on the coast. And he also didn't give. He also took away all their farming land, essentially. And this was quite a common thing across the Highlands, especially during the High and Clearance of that time, where landowners wanted their sort of local communities on their land to take up fishing in order to free the land for 
you know, sheep rearing or for grouse moor hunting and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so was, was this legal? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because, because he was the landowner, he had what some might call the apex rights, which allowed him to do quite a lot of fundamental changes or renovations to his land. So he was completely within his rights to do what he did. Wow. Okay, so as you say, the Highland Clearances, people who know even the smallest amount about history in Scotland know that was a, a dark chapter, but it was also a long time ago. It's kind of a couple of hundred years ago. Is there still a problem in more recent times with land ownership in Scotland? And is it really any more skewed than in, say, England? I think with land form, or with land ownership in Scotland, the all of these issues do date back hundreds of years and it is a case of stagnation so the property regime that existed under Lord Rothmore um, still existed until basically this century you know where Scotland was still a feudal country still had um, feudal superiors who were due uh, money from their vassals and all of this has a sort of a knock-on effect over time meaning that you know even today even with all the sort of reforms and awareness of land reform in Scotland now still less than 500 individuals own half the land in Scotland Half with 500 individuals, do you say? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that does sound pretty staggering. That does sound like probably worse than England. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, definitely. And also, you know, Scotland is, or the Highlands of Scotland are some of the most sparse areas of Europe. And the the reason for that is because of all the things that happened during Rossmore's time with the clearances and people being moved to more urban areas and, you know, you could say the landscape that as we have it is not natural. It is the consequence of changing land ownership which still have impact today about how or inform how we think the land should be owned or managed now okay um but as you say the land is pretty empty it's not that productive so is this really an argument about wealth or is it about power do you think (laughs) i think the tricky one with that question is often the two come hand in hand right you know, if you're very wealthy, you're going to have a lot of power as well. And the one thing about land is that it's always a lucrative investment. It's often a bit of a, you know, landowner's gambit of, oh, it's not about um, who owns the land, it's about the land, how the land is managed. But fundamentally, a lot of landowners won't own the land unless they get sort of profit out of it, if you know what I mean. Um, and land and ownership itself, you know, like I said before, it gives you all these rights about what you can do with the land and it can really influence local development of whether, you know, even things like how many houses you can build, who can profit from the land, all these sort of things are all tied up together. I mean, I, I know that when people look at inequality around the world, they do say that in those kind of stark statistics you get about how unequally wealth is shared, a, a lot of it can be put down to differences in land ownership and also going back to that time of those feudal laws you you, you talk about which were only phased out quite recently you've got a, a a nice kind of map accompanying your essay in prospect which is sort of saying just how much of the highlands is used for quote sporting estates which sounds a bit like the kind of use this was 2002 so kind of pre most of the reforms but kind of um you know not that long ago this century uh, like, like a lot of the land still being used in the way that Lord Rossmore might have rather approved of. Yeah, exactly. And um, the funny thing about Grousemoor is that, that that in itself is also quite, you know, we tend to think this as being a very ancient practice of Highland lairds going out to catch uh, deer or whatever. But it's actually a Victorian concept, this idea of like, oh, you know, every sporting gentleman in London will have his own 
hunting estate in the Highlands somewhere. So this idea that the land, like, that the land has always been owned in particular ways or used for particular purposes is changing all the time. Okay. Now, you say that the big change that really mattered was somehow umbilically linked to uh, devolution. Tell us about uh, what land's got to do with devolution for Scotland as a whole. So I think we're all familiar with the idea of a landed elite or landed gentry who in Parliament often composed, were often found in the House of Lords. So most attempts to do any sort of meaningful land reform within Westminster were always hampered by this lobby in the House of Lords, again, who had a vested interest in land being kept uh, in the same hands or owned in the same way for as long as possible. Before devolution, most attempts to change things in Scotland were sort of either shot down or watered down. So there were some modest reforms in the 70s about, you know, people could buy out their few duties in a one-off payment rather than having to pay monthly or annually to their superior. But fun, they, did n- they never removed feudalism itself. Mm, that word superior was still there in the law, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. It was still, like, people still talked about things like, oh, you know, you're a vassal, you know, these sort of, we'd almost think of these as being insults, but that you could still legally be called that. It was only really with devolution that we had a parliament and the space, the time as well, because at Westminster, you know, Scottish affairs only had a limited amount of time to be discussed compared with all the other issues of the day that were going on. Um, whereas with a, a Scottish parliament allowed those issues, the time and space to be debated and properly reformed and voted on without having to have landed interests sort of hindering that progress. That was why devolution, for a lot of people within the sort of land reform movement, devolution was a fundamental or really important part of getting these these things going. So um, you talk about the first First Minister, Donald Dewar, who I know is interested uh, in the subject as well. And what did his first reforms, I don't know if it's right to call them his, or you know, the, administra- the first administration's reforms actually achieve? So the priority, I think, with the first sort of slew of land reform from the devolved government was removing feudalism. So getting so abolishing the whole relationship of feudal superiors and vassals and all the rest of it. So and then from that everything else sort of went on. And the the main new change, you could say that was just correcting a anachronism. The first new change was the introduction of community ownership and the community right to buy. So Local communities across Scotland, especially in the Highlands and Islands of a certain size, were allowed to have, if you like, first dibs on if their land ever went up for sale. They could put in a community interest application, which would be reviewed by ministers, and then if that land ever went on sale, they would be the first people allowed to buy it. And at the same time, the government also started up the Scottish Land Fund, meaning that these communities could raise the money needed in order to buy that land in the first place. So is it like you? Is it a borrow? Do you borrow the money to buy it, or do you? Is it a kind of grant? No, it's a grant. And in the original, the original inception, it was a lottery funded. Now we'd like to recommend another podcast we think you'll enjoy, with reason, from the New Humanist magazine, which brings you intelligent thinking for our turbulent times. Just like this podcast, it's an interview-based show featuring conversation with top thinkers, talking in depth about their fascinating, sometimes challenging, work and ideas. 
covers everything from sex robots to Protestant fundamentalism. And season two is out now with speakers like Joe Marchant on humanity's relationship to the heavens, Michael Rosen on COVID and the ethics of care. It's a podcast that makes you feel sharper just by listening and we think you'll like it just as much as we do. So look up With Reason now, wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Right, okay. So so you've got a new right to buy and you've got some money to help you buy it. So it starts to sound like it could uh, move things. And it's also changed over time, hasn't it? This is a sort of programme that, roughly speaking, has been moving for 20-odd years now. And um, things have happened since that first wave of reform as well. Yeah, so there's been... I think within, within the Scottish Parliament, there's probably been about two or three sort of like landmark pieces of legislation there's the next so you had the first wave in sort of the early 2000s the next wave came in sort of 2015 2016 when we had the community empowerment act which you know strengthened the rights of communities to own their land uh, expanded the idea of what a community was so it, it could be a larger population of people and also started to get it into urban spaces as well so originally this this legislation was all just about um uh, rural and particular highland communities that you know, because of the history with the clearances, there was a greater emphasis on the on the sort of injustices or imbalance of land ownership there. But now there's been a greater focus on urban spaces and how that might look or how community ownership might look in those kind of contexts. Yeah, and you've got a case study um, about an Edinburgh church that might be bought out in this way. And this is where it really gets quite serious for inequality because a huge part of the, a huge chunk of the wealthy's wealth um, does come down to urban land. I mean, it's obviously an early stage, but you can see why well, this is very political, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think also in urban spaces, uh, you can sometimes be more aware of like who owns what. You you see empty houses or grand mansions, and you think, oh, who owns that? Whereas with you, when you look at a landscape of moors or trees, you don't necessarily immediately think about who owns it in that same way. Mm. And so um, it's still moving to rain even now, isn't it? I think like since you published the paper, there's been some kind of tweak to the law and green papers. Is that right? Is it still going all the time, this movement? Yeah, there's, um, I would probably say that within the parliament itself, the Scottish parliament, um, I think because, you know, so the la- if the last reforms were in 2016, this is all just before Brexit happened. And since then we've had Brexit and now coronavirus, there's you know, been a lot of distractions. But in terms of outside of parliament, um, there's all yeah there's always like groups and the Scottish Land Commission which is a sort of um, non-departmental government body I think um, is always publishing new papers and discuss holding discussions and doing all sorts of things so recently they've as recently as February this year uh, they released a new what they call a discussion paper where they're building on proposals that they came up with in 2019 um, mostly to do with defining what we mean by public interest because in all these sort of community ownership bids and all that stuff there, we talk about, oh, well, you have to prove that your ownership is in the public interest, but we don't actually quite know what public interest means. So it's just about defining what we mean by that and also putting more of an onus on people who want to make large acquisitions of land. Um, like, so to make sure that they're doing it in a way that is, you know, meets, is sustainable or is not impacting on local people that live there, all these sort of things. And I mean, you make a very good point about what is the public interest? Of course, the interest of the traditional landlord is very different maybe from that of their tenants. So 
Tell us like how you see that kind of thing being transcended. Like, give, give us some examples of communities you know about where they've bought out land and what's happened as a result. Is there, is there some kind of overarching public interest that has been served where this has been done? Uh, I think within the Highlands, uh, one of the communities I spoke to for the article was the North Harris Trust. What, what kind of struck me about their story was that, first of all, they didn't have any problems with sort of troublesome landlords, like some places like the Isle of Egg did. You know, they got on with their land, their landowners perfectly well, but they just wanted to have more of a say in what was done with the land. And through buying basically the whole land around of, like, sort of North Harris, um, they've managed to build more houses, for, especially for young people, which helped increase the uh, population of the place, because these, these places are always sort of struggling with depopulation and people going to urban centres. So they've managed to reverse that trend, which is quite amazing, really. Um, and they've also managed to create their own fund. So they've managed to create their own community fund, that, so almost like the Scottish Land Fund on a smaller scale. They've been able to accumulate money, which they can then give out to areas that they think are already of their own community interest, and they can define that for themselves. So I think it's always a question of, you know, if there's a desire for people to make those decisions, we should do everything we can to let them make those decisions. And I think you had somewhere in there as well that there were kind of, I don't know if it was Harris or somewhere else, but they're investing in bird viewing platforms or something, something things that might help with, with tourism. So there could be an economic spin-off as well as a social one, right? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was in North Harris as well. They've also like made a caravan park and all that stuff. So these are all things that are helping with the local industry and with the local economy. Okay, so that is starting to sound like a kind of public interest that, that, that might stack up and it's not just a kind of us against them thing. What about where this plays into politics now? Now, as you said, there's been a lot going on, hasn't there? There's been Brexit and all the rest of it. And Scotland's election right now, which we know is coming up in, in May, is in the news for, let's just remind everyone, for quite different reasons, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so the past like few months there's been this inquiry into how the Scottish government handled harassment claims against former First Minister Alex Salmond, um, which were found to have been unlawful at the time, and Alex Salmond was given a huge payout as a consequence. This is now the inquiry and seeing how that all went wrong, and one of Salmond's main claims is that the Scottish government sort of deliberately wanted to do him over or to put him in prison or whatever, um, and the Scottish government are saying that's not the case. So this is, this is all playing out in quite dramatic fashion, especially when you consider the fact that Sturgeon and Salmond were both very close at one time. Um, yeah, so you've got, you, you've got the two great figures of the SNP like, tearing each other's throat out, and you've also got the whole kind of Scotland versus London dimension with, are they going to have another referendum? Is Boris going to say no if they want one and all that sort of things? So does some... Does any any other issue, you know, including land reform, get a look in in this kind of political context? Uh, I feel like at the moment, even if those issues are not at the forefront of people's minds, they will always be there. And I think land reform is one of these issues that, you know, anyone wanting to make arguments about having a Scottish Parliament to deal with Scottish issues, land reform is the perfect example of an issue that has been dealt with quite successfully by the Scottish Government, or by the Scottish Parliaments, rather. I also think with one other party that is set to do quite well at the upcoming May elections is the Green Party, who, even with the departure of, you know, renowned land reformer Andy Whiteman, they still are the party of land reform in Scotland. So if they are to increase their numbers up to 10, 10 MSPs, as some polls suggest, that will only... That will give land from even greater emphasis on the sort of national debate in Scotland, for sure. Okay, so in a, in a way, if you know, if if the SNP's in trouble and fracturing a bit, and the and the Greens pick up on some of that, it could mean 
land reform becomes even more of a thing rather than less. Let's just close by talking about whether there still is any opposition to this movement. You've got some funny quotes from the Scottish Conservatives, as was back 20 years ago, when they're saying this is a Mugabe-like raid on property rights or whatever. Uh, do you know where the Scottish Tories on it are now? Is, is there anyone saying thus far and no further, or is this thing going to roll and roll? Um, I think the nature of, of land reform is as soon as someone, as soon as people start talking about, um, you know, private property and what needs to be done about it, there's always alarm bells going from some quarters about, oh my God, you know, they're going to take all our houses and collectivise our farms sort of thing. So even in 2016 with the Community Empowerment Act, there was some, you know, some people were calling the reforms Leninist, for example. So even though I think the Conservative Party themselves are probably not as vocal about land reform as they used to be, there will always be sort of a, some pushback somewhere, I think. So it's just part and parcel of the political debate. And, and, and is there any, any sense in which it turns, it feeds into the argument about independence, yes or no? Would some people say we could go further on this if we had that second referendum and finally Scotland did make the break? Yeah, yeah for sure, I think so. I think especially because there are some people debating in Scotland about, oh, well, you know, should, should an independent Scotland be a republic? And that in itself would also change how um, land is owned and the power of the aristocracy and land and interests and all that stuff. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. You can read David McAllister's inspiring essay, which has the headline, Our Land, on the Prospect website. So just Google that if you want to find it. Or you can look on the show notes where we'll put a link. It really is a story that's worth getting to know. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.